0: Hello, and welcome to our Season of Creation episodes of Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the lectionary for Sunday, September 24th, Proper 20. Our exquisite guests this week are the Reverend Dr. Christina O'Hara, who is a spiritual director and is the rector at the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd. Originally from Toronto, Canada, she lives in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and enjoys hiking and ballet. The Reverend Dr. Hilary Raining, who is the rector of St. Christopher's Church in Gladwin, Pennsylvania, and creator of the Hive Online Spirituality and Wellness Digital Community. Additionally, Hillary is a beekeeper, yoga and meditation instructor, as well as a forest therapist. And last but definitely not least, the Reverend Phil Hooper, SMMS, who serves as the rector of St. Anne Episcopal Church in Westchester, Ohio, and a board member of the Center for Deep Green Faith. Phil has interests in writing, contemplative spirituality, and creation care. Welcome, friends. Thank you all for being here. Why is it important for us as Christians or Episcopalians to celebrate the season of creation or care about creation care?
1: I'm actually really compelled with the gospel for just this very purpose. So right, I'll even tie in a little scripture if that's okay. I think obviously we are called by nature of the first part of the Bible in Genesis where we're called to be good stewards of this earth as the reason humans are even created But what I think is so beautiful about the Gospel of Matthew for this week is that it actually echoes this, I think, in some ways, right? We have this image of a garden. We have this image of who arrives at what time to do what kind of work. And when I look at that, it says to me a bit of what heaven must be like, a garden restored, a place for each one of us in it, and that it's tied to creation as is now as well, right? You know, the images that we use are, that Christ used, I should say, tie in with the gardens from the beginning, from the end in Revelation and all the gardens between so that this piece of heaven will also be the same on earth. That means that all the things we use here on earth or interact with or take care of or work in like a vineyard actually has a place to play in the resurrection and in the uh, the final of all creation. In Revelation, it says God will make all things new, not all new stuff. <laughs> right? So it really is important that we hold on and see ourselves as stewarding this piece of creation because it's an eternal creation as well as our temporal one.
2: Building on what you just said, Hilary, I think why do we have to care about this with a sense of urgency now is because the reality of what we see around us in the world, in the totality of creation, is not what is spoken of in scripture in terms of its original intent or its ultimate destiny or, you know, purpose. The climate crisis, the ways in which Both people and the rest of creation are exploited and trampled upon in the name of, quote unquote, progress, whatever that means. These sorts of realities that we're learning, I think, in newer and better ways to face and to name add urgency to this sort of task. We talk about wanting to be a justice-oriented church in many ways, but we can't do that in fullness if we're not giving voice to the justice concerns uh, facing not just our human siblings, but our siblings throughout the created order.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: To celebrate a season of creation is really a call to rededicate ourselves to our fundamental role as participants in the healing of the world, the world that desperately needs healing.
3: Mm-hmm. And if we say that we're people who worship god the creator then we need to be having that same heart that god has for god's creation and god created all things and it was very good we read in genesis and so we need to have that same heart that same caring for creation that god has as we follow god to have that same love for creation care for creation desire to restore creation to what god intended it to be at the very start which was very good Mm -hmm.
0: so what ideas do you have liturgically for doing a season of creation service or doing a service that focuses on creation
1: we're really lucky here at saint christopher's we've been using season of creation materials for about five years now and have been able to kind of increase in what we've done with it this year we're taking it to a new level i'm excited for that In particular, we've been able to use a lot of the resources from seasonofcreation.org, which is the website that contains all sorts of wonderful liturgical materials, boilerplates for bulletin inserts, things like that, from the wide council of churches that are involved in this, which is a very ecumenical event, so that's beautiful in its own right. But the Episcopal Church also has some very good liturgical resources some uh, an liturgical guide specifically for each year and each theme, which has beautiful prayers, prayers to the people, Eucharistic prayers, even some different ways of honoring the confession that take us beyond individual spiritual confessions into corporate confessions of not living into who the church should be, especially in matters of justice and eco-spirituality. And the last general convention has an entire section of liturgical materials for honoring God and creation that are also really fantastic. A lot of great propers, a lot of prayers, et cetera. So we use that liturgical material to really give shape to the service, as well as hymns and et cetera. While we also use this the sermon space as a time to give certain calls to action that are achievable, but also hopefully will make people think about and pray about their role in creation care. For example, one week we're going to be using a postcard writing prayer technique that the Legislative Episcopal Office for Government Relations, our lobby in in Washington, has given a little guide for. There's all sorts of initiatives that people can write to their congressmen about, and that's one of the things we'll do with our postcards. We have a prayer card that we're sending to people home with so they can pray about these issues. We're asking them to do a carbon or an energy fast for one hour all the way up to 24 hours, depending on what their comfort level might be. And then finally, in the last week, we're going to do a tree blessing ceremony, almost like a Rogation Day type ceremony, as well as we're planting a memorial tree, as well as our St. Francis Day pet blessing as well. So all those things go together to really make a beautiful season of creation. And we're blessed to try that out here at St. Christopher's.
2: I realize that a lot of parishes are in different places when it comes to engaging these themes in a conscious way. And what Hillary just described is amazing. (laughs) That's a, what a wonderful collection of resources and implementing them in such an active, cohesive way. I have also experienced serving communities where these conversations are very new and people aren't really sure how to start or to even begin thinking about this, especially if they haven't been accustomed to integrating this conversation into their broader considerations of our faith tradition. So I would say, and part of the reason I'm excited about our conversation today is that if you're going to begin anywhere liturgically, begin with your preaching Because preaching is where the thoughtful preacher can skillfully lift up these themes in the most sort of impactful way that's going to, you know, get that conversation started in a place where it's not already happening. So that can be in a very explicit way, you know, naming certain sort of climate crisis issues. It can also, depending on where your community is at, it can begin perhaps in a more gentle way, just naming the goodness of creation, Mm. naming our connection and our integration into creation, and then sort of building on the conversation from there. It's great to know where your community is at in that spectrum, and then sort of beginning With the most effective way to start the conversation. But personally, I have found that the preached word is one of the best places to start.
3: Yeah, we're definitely in that boat, Phil, of being a congregation and a part of the country where we haven't had a great awareness of even a season of creation. So we do um, a St. Francis blessing of the animals every year. And that's Mm -hmm. been part of our tradition for a long time. And we do it out on the lawn and people bring their. Animals and we have treats for the animals and the people. And we're trying to use that as an opportunity, particularly to do outreach in our community to people who might not enter the doors of a church, but who really value their own pets, their own animals. And so, as we bless their animals, we're blessing them. We've developed some liturgy over the years that we've used with that. Some of it has been written by Joan Chittister, who has some wonderful, wonderful prayers. For me, it's something new to lead my congregation in. We've got a wonderful grant through the campus ministry young adult that is going to be to build a food forest on our church. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're just getting a little bit of a taste and God's giving us like these baby steps to start to appreciate and realize why this is important. So for me, it's sort of like, oh, there are all these resources I really had no idea about. So I'm excited to hear from this group and from the other podcasts in the series of some of the resources that are available.
2: Your comment about St. Francis Day makes me think, you know, everyone loves their pets. People who would never identify with creation care or sort of some of these broader conversations, yet you can always find a starting point for conversation. You love your pets. You find a sense of God's presence when you're walking out in the natural world. Like there are always entry points into this conversation, Mm -hmm. building from there and saying like, really, this is just a celebration of the love that already exists in our hearts. It's not like this overlay. It's it's baked into who we are.
3: And no matter where we fall on the political spectrum, because we're in a place that has some pretty severe extremes here in South Dakota. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. be able to have this conversation about where can we find common values, common goals, common things that we cherish, and where is God meeting us in those common values?
0: Let's talk about the gospel. You know, Jesus uses this parable to help us understand the kingdom of God, but there are, like, so many places it could go, and, like, I've seen people do it about union busting and getting the workers to fight against each other. And it could be, you know, is it about grace? Is it about like coming late to the party, like St. John Chrysostom's Easter sermon, where it's like those who fast and those who didn't come and rejoice anyway? Is it about the difference between equality and equity? Or is it about the need for a living rage, regardless about how much you work? Where do you guys see this fitting in? Or what sort of pieces do you see? Where would you take it? That's the beauty of parables, right?
2: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's about so many things and all the things. There are so many points of entry into unpacking what it contains. A preacher could run in so many different directions with this, depending on on the need and context in which they were preaching. For myself, as I was kind of pondering as we prepared for this conversation, thinking from a creation care perspective, If the kingdom of God is somehow reflective of this scenario with the vineyard and the laborers who all receive the same wage, no matter how long they've been involved, that's set up I think to destabilize and challenge our expectation of how things work, how an economy functions Mm. is supposed to leave us a little uncomfortable because we're so inculturated to expect a certain way that the labor resource is shared, and then you get something in return and that given exchange, we just assume that's the way the world is. And so we're sort of awakened by wait, what, what is going on? What does this mean? One thing that it indicates or begins to encourage me to imagine is that the kingdom of God is not an economy in the way that we tend to think of an economy, but that in fact, it's more of an ecology, Mm. an ecological system in which life, the flourishing of life, the equal flourishing of life is the actual prevailing value that drives the system versus sort of the Management of scarce resources dispensed to people based on some measure of merit. Mm. When I shift to an ecological understanding of the kingdom, that begins to open up new doorways of imagination that, you know, both destabilize my assumptions, but also inspire me to dream of new possibilities of living.
1: Oh, I would love to echo all of that. I always find it so amazing. Whenever this parable comes up, I have people tell me how much they hate it. (laughs) Just get mad about it. This one and the parable of the two sons and the prodigal son, you know, people always like, well, I understand why the older brother is so cranky, right? Like what I think Jesus does as you put so beautifully is Jesus tells us, hey, the way that we look at the world and each other and this ecology, looking at it as something to hoard or to get more of or fight about, Mm. the more we see that as the point, the less we get it right. Jesus constantly surprises us with this. And what is so funny is how angry we can get at good news, how mad it can make us, right? You know, when we're like, wait a minute, that's not fair. Well, is it fair that we have this beautiful planet and we're not taking care of it either? Right? Like, there's so much about our assumptions here that Jesus asks us to question. And I just love how you put it. It's God's economy is actually God's ecology. And that's what we need to remember.
3: It's really beautiful. I mean, I love the line from the vineyard owner. Are you so envious because I am generous? Mm. If someone gets more than we get, then it's you know not fair when God wants to give us this bounty more than we deserve. <laughs> we want to work on deserving. I want to be deserving and get what I deserve when God wants to give us so much more and not just us, but all of creation. And so we want to fight over the scraps and God is like, no, 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 no. there's this feast here. Enjoy the feast and enjoy the one who gives you the feast. Because if we're looking at of all of us and all of creation being in relationship then this is about having a relationship with the landowner. So he's not this distant God who doles out a wage, but it's someone we have relationship with. And then we have a relationship with one another, and we're probably going to get ticked off with each other <laughs> more often than not, but yet to recognize this glorious gift that God has given us in God's love, in God's grace, in God's bounty, And how can we be generous like God
1: is generous instead of being so stingy? (laughs) The tendency is to be stingy. If I could build on that too, I mean, I think you both have hit the nail so well on the head. This is why human beings will then give way to things like the doctrine of discovery or manifest destiny, right? And why it's like, we end up thinking that we can own a certain piece of land,
3: Mm. um,
1: especially in a colonizing mindset. When, when truly people who live in a much more indigenous understanding, this is why they have a different relationship to the land, not as something to be owned, but as something to grow with, to cultivate with, to share, and to have an understanding of generosity as baked into the way of life because we're so grateful for this beautiful Mother Earth that we have. It's only when you start getting a colonialized mindset of thinking, ah, they have something, I want it, I'm going to take it that you start seeing why people get mad about this parable, right? You know, you can't give in to manifest destiny and hear this parable and not feel convicted if you're really thinking about it. And to me, that's where so many of our current day ecological issues come into play, is the way the world has been so colonized, stripped of its indigenous wisdom, and be made to be commodified.
0: I always struggle with that too, the idea of owning land, right? That's like in there us as a landowner, it's like, we don't have a concept of only land until later when it was kind of brought to us. I was thinking about the parable in a much more simplistic way and that like, you know, those who started working on eco justice or caring for the environment early on and those who just started are all going to get the benefits of helping the earth, right? Like, so it doesn't matter where you start because everybody's going to benefit. That was like... <laughs> <laughs> that was my simple idea. But. What do you make of the first is last and the last is first part? I always wonder about that. And sometimes I think about, you know, like I know in academia, when you when you write a paper, like if you're the first author, that means something. But also the other next best place is the last author. Right. And that's sort of like the prestigiousness of your contribution to the paper. But what is that like and how might we think about the first versus last in terms of climate change or environment? As you asked that question, Shaniqua,
2: it reminds me of what Christina said a minute ago that struck me about like we're all really sort of focused on what we deserve or creating a sense of how we deserve things. And by association, other people maybe don't deserve them in the same way, mm. according to whatever construct we set up in our minds and in our society to enforce that. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. You know, to me, the supposition of those first in line. In the parable, obviously they're assuming that they deserve something more than the ones who came later. They're operating under this worldview that's based on who deserves what and how can I position myself in order to reap the greatest benefit from such a system. When we talk about the last and the least, not just in this parable, but just more broadly within our faith tradition, we're talking generally about people who have been excluded from systems of advantage. Mm. Don't have access to the same structures and opportunities that would allow them to receive those benefits. And yet they are the ones who are called undeserving just because the system is constructed to characterize them as such for whatever reason. This parable. Sort of, and the whole idea, the upending of the first and the last, and the sort of topsy turvy nature of what Jesus says, I think is really just a sort of deconstruction of that whole system or that whole idea of who deserves and who doesn't deserve. And it's a statement that God is not interested in who deserves something, God is interested in the mutual and full flourishing of all created things. Mm. Because certainly when we talk about the last, uh, you know, the last considered is usually non-human creation uh, within the stuff we're considering today. I think it's really about getting rid of this idea of deserving and moving towards sort of a much more expansive and inclusive understanding of flourishing for all.
3: Yeah, we really live in this meritocracy, right? Mm. In our world, in our church, who deserves this? And God is turning that on its head and saying, I, I want to give you this bounteous gift. And uh, you're quibbling over the scraps when, um, gosh, I want to give it to you all of you all together. What a great gift. Mm-hmm. The last and first is the meritocracy. And God is saying, no, it's so much bigger than that. Yeah.
1: When you think about it in relation to the planet, there's nothing that we haven't been given even in a vineyard, you know, something that somebody has tended and planted, the seeds for those vines have come from the vine of life, right? You know, the soil is the very soil that God has given us to begin with. The fact that we argue over that, which we have not created to begin with is almost comical. And this little bit reminds me of that little child's poem where, you know, when the sun shines, it shines on everyone. When it rains, it rains on anyone and everyone. And God's love is for everyone. It's a similar sort of thing. And so all the other little litmus tests of deservedness that we put in front of a person, ableism, economic pieces, whatever, what have you, none of that is a value that God seems to hold as a litmus test for what God's love and bounty should be bestowed upon. We just get it so wrong when we think there's anything else.
0: So where do you see connections between this parable and our current lived reality? And I was thinking about day laborers when I was reading this, just in terms of like, I know when I was in California, there were a lot of them outside of like different hardware stores and things. And, you know, there's some specific ministries they would do with them, like they bring out lunches or, you know, especially for the folks who didn't find work. What things did you notice as you read this between that and our current lived reality?
3: Well, I don't think I've looked at it quite. That way, I think, until you mentioned it, Shiniko, but there's just this idea of a daily wage being enough. I mean, and you would think, you know, Mm -hmm. that we should pay those who are doing the work, particularly in the service industries, a daily wage, a wage that would be enough for them to live on. And unfortunately, we don't. And we have created a whole system where we complain about those who are taking advantage of the system as being those on welfare, but yet it's really the corporations who are on welfare because they're demanding that we pay for those things that they do not pay, like healthcare, for workers who are, let's say, working in a fast food restaurant. When you look at the injustice in our system, where this one is a landowner who's really generous with his workers, oftentimes we have to be forced to be generous And that's not right. It should come out of the abundance of our heart. But yet this becomes convicting Um, for those of us who are benefiting from a system where some people are working really hard for not very
1: much. Yeah, and I think your question is a really good one and poignant for preachers, because some of us may be ministering in, in congregations like mine, that most of the people in our pews will not have an experience of seeing migrant workers, oftentimes at the side of the road, waiting for somebody to hail them into a truck and, you know, take them to work. I grew up in a very agricultural place and that was commonplace. Many of the people for whom I minister to now have not seen that, have not experienced this. So this to them is almost a historical, like anything, like the parable of the sower or, you know, the tares and the wheat. It's actually, I think, really important for preachers to get pun intended, into the weeds a little bit with this about what the agricultural reality was both historically, but still now. I mean, the fact that people are still hoping to find a daily wage that is often not even a daily wage. Right. And the fact that we don't have laws to protect people who are in this exact circumstance, there's never just one issue when you talk about an ecological issue. It is a major system of justice that people are caught in the web of that can be very invisible to some of our congregants. And it's worth, I think the preacher pausing and getting in the weeds with
2: it. An interesting thing that I've done in some groups when you're sort of engaging with scripture from a creation perspective is to notice what you notice and what you don't notice when you engage in a particular story. It is common, maybe pervasive, that when we read this parable, our focus is on the landowner and the laborers, and we think less about the role of the vineyard of the land itself. Mm. An interesting question that we might raise to sort of think about how we're formed to engage with these themes is what would it look like to you if you considered the vineyard, a character in this parable?
0: Absolutely.
2: What would the vineyard say? What would the vineyard
0: think about
2: what was going on in this story? What does that tell us about the ways in which we relate to the land now in our own time and place? Are we so divorced from our experience of agricultural societies and, and just how the land supports all life? And that might tell us that we need to rethink who we see as sort of central to some of these stories. I find that that could be an interesting tool for conversation to remember that the only characters in scripture are not the humans, but there are actually all kinds of others that are active participants in the kingdom as described.
1: Bill, I love that so much. Can I go down a little rabbit hole with that for a yeah. minute? That was really good. I love that. it, it also makes me think, of course. Jesus is the vine, right? And so what we have been given a chance in this parable is to imagine, thanks to your good inviting invitation to imagine, is how are we taking care of the body of Christ, even though we are also branches on that, right? Like and there's a there's a tending to it that calls us right back to our roles of stewardships of creation as part of the body of Christ here and now. And what you see, of course, are different fractions of people arguing of who's taking care of this part of the body of Christ better than others, or who deserves to be in this vineyard or not, mm. who deserves access to the vine or not. And this is a major issue across, I think, Christian denominations about what constitutes climate change and eco-spirituality to begin with. I grew up in a area that had many evangelical Christians in it, and they were not only not interested to talk about climate change, they were mad about it because they felt like, you know, not that this is our theology, but if they were going to be raptured at a certain point, who cares about this planet? You don't need to take care of it, right? In fact, it probably deserves to burn. When you have that part of the tending of the vine of Christ, if you will, being so cut off from the actual rest of creation, you can see why then people don't care about the earth or bodies or people or et cetera, right? Like it all starts to fall apart when we don't see that metaphorically. So thank you for that great point, Philip. Really, I have a new sermon wrapped around that, thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
0: Let's talk about Jonah. This story I always thought about like, it reminds me of Pinocchio a little bit because they go inside a whale, right? And in the Pinocchio story, but... Jonah goes inside of a fish or a whale or, you know, whatever. I was wondering as I was thinking about it, who might a Jonah be of today? And if Jonah were coming to us, you know, to speak to us in our city or our context or our whatever, maybe our church, what might Jonah have to say for us? What message might Jonah have?
1: Well, she doesn't run away, but I was thinking of Greta Thunberg, of course, you know, somebody who has a prophetic message that is uncompromising and it's truth telling that we are at a point in our life as human species, where if we do not make changes, it is on our heads. We were past that point, frankly. And what I love about her message is that she's very, very honest about it and does not let that get watered down, even if it's an invitation to speak at something that she doesn't think is doing enough work, you know, and I find that to be. Very Jonah in its strong message, but she doesn't run away. So there is that.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And Jonah we see also becoming angry. And it's interesting that his anger then is judged by God. I mean, because he's angry that really these people that God is calling him to call to repent, he doesn't really want them to repent. He wants them to get judgment. Mm. I mean, he is, you know, doing. Begrudgingly, what God is calling him to do in going to Nineveh, but he doesn't want his enemies to repent. He wants them to suffer. Mm -hmm. He wants them to be judged by God and get fire and brimstone. And so he goes up on this bluff overlooking the city so that he can see the fire and the brimstone. And then when it doesn't come, he's ticked off. I guess I can see some of myself in that. I don't want those people who are doing the wrong thing. To be forgiven. I want them to come to some level of accountability. But yet, God is trying to introduce God's heart again to Jonah to say, you know, listen, you care about this vine that's growing over you basically because it benefits you. And how much am I going to appreciate those things that benefit me? I'll appreciate walking in the trees because they give me shade, I'll appreciate my garden because it gives me things to eat. But am I willing to reach out and do something that's going to help others? Am I going to get beyond myself and see the benefit that God wants me to provide to those around me, mm-hmm. even if they might not seem deserving? Again, getting back to that meritocracy idea.
2: Yeah. I'll confess I hadn't sat with Jonah in an explicitly sort of creation care reflection mode interesting things were swirling around in my mind as I sit with the story from that perspective. And this one theme that suddenly I began to associate with his anger, his, his frustration in the narrative, I started thinking about climate grief. And, and the reason is because I think part of why Jonah is so frustrated At first, we don't know why he's reluctant, why he's running away, why he doesn't want to fulfill this call, other than the fact that being a prophet is kind of a tough job. He says at the end, he says, God, they repented and you forgave them. And I'm mad because I knew you were going to do it. I knew that your love and mercy were so big and so broad that you were going to forgive My sworn enemies, right? These awful people in Nineveh who definitely don't deserve, back to our deserving, don't deserve your your love and your grace. Almost the sense like his frustration, he's so angry he wants to die, is almost the sense of futility that he's caught up in something over which he has no control of the outcome. That there's no sort of role for him to play because in this case, God's plan and purposes are so big and so broad and so powerful. What I found really fascinating, because I think from a climate grief perspective, it's so easy, it's so easy to get tempted to despair. We, too, might get frustrated and almost throw up our hands and want to say, well, why even bother? I I know what's right and I know what's wrong, but there's really nothing that I can do about it. I don't know that anything's going to change most of these people, these Nineveh types are off there, you know, sinning, and I, don't, I, just, I just don't want to be any part of it. I don't see my role in all of this. But what God sort of instructs Jonah at the end of the story is to say, you sort of took your grief and your frustration, your rage towards the people of Nineveh. Instead of doing something productive with it, you let it sort of lead you into a place of despair. You let it lead you into a place where you wanted to run away, you wanted to hide, you didn't want to face what needed to be faced. And God's invitation at the end of the story is to say, don't let your grief turn into despair and inaction. Channel your grief instead, as I do, into compassion. Channel it into the broadest sort of compassion that incorporates and then ultimately transforms all of the people that you will encounter, because that is the way that God functions. God sort of conquers us and transforms us by God's grace and compassion. I think it's a good reminder for me on those days when I want to despair about things climate-related or otherwise, that The invitation and the challenge, if I'm to take up my own sort of prophetic role, small as it might be, is to come at it from that place of compassion and expansive possibility that God is always revealing to us in this work.
1: I think that would make for a very important sermon theme. What I've noticed is in this kind of westernized system of ours, we don't have enough elders who are able to speak to the anxieties, especially of our youth, who are swimming in this right now. All of the youth I talk to are despondent, they're in despair, or they're highly anxious about all of these things. So to have a a sermon that is like an indigenous bit of elderly wisdom would be really helpful. It goes back, I think, too, to saying that the more that we can take an indigenous mindset for so much of this, the more we understand that humans don't have to be the problem. Humans can actually be part of the beautiful solution, even to the problems we've created, but only if we don't give in to despair or hatred or all of the things that you beautifully named, because if we do that, we can't transform anything. We can only transmit our anxiety, fear, etc.
0: So what messages might a Jonah have for the church today?
1: Do something, right? (laughs) Do something. I think that's what God tells Jonah and then make sure he does. And then Jonah tells Nineveh and then they do it. And things, at least metaphorically in the story change. We know historically it probably, you know, Nineveh didn't suddenly become this great place. But for the sake of the story, it did. Jonah then, as we've said, gets chastised by God for then saying, forget it. I'm not going to do anything after this. The doing something helps. It actually makes a difference. Sometimes so small, perhaps, that we would turn to despair and not actually believe anything else is going to happen. But the more that we do this, especially as a church, the more things can change. But we have to have the hope in it.
2: The wild thing is that the message of the prophets is pretty much the same. And we still need to hear it because apparently we still struggle to embody it. You know, repent of the ways that you exploit the vulnerable, human and non human, repent of the ways that you exploit the earth know who god is know what an idol is and the ways in which we separate ourselves from the totality of love that is the divine you know seek justice walk humbly (laughs) you know all these things are the same message i thank god that we still have that voice crying out to us through the pages of scripture and in the embodied actions of the saints that are at work in the church because we still need to hear it, maybe more than Nineveh ever did. My goodness, we still need that prophetic message. And I think the fact that it is the same message across time really tells you something about both our own, maybe our own struggles as people, but also at the consistency, the eternal consistency of God. God always wants the same thing for creation. We just have to figure out how to actually live into it in our own time.
3: It was probably like the worst sermon ever as he walked across the city, you know. (laughs) Repent or you will die in three days. You know, I mean, just saying the same thing over and over and over again. It's like, come on, Jonah. As preachers, we need to say, okay, I can bring the worst sermon, but yet God can even use that to turn the hearts of people to the way God needs them to be. I might have my own agenda that may be deeply flawed, even, but yet I can. Just be obedient to what God is telling me to do. Speak the words because I can't stop. You know, I need to do something like you said, Hillary. Also, I know that I'm not going to do it right. I'm going to try my best, but I will fail. But yet God can somehow bring the work that needs to happen. So I do my small little bit and trust that somehow God is going to bring that to where it needs to be in the midst of the task that seems insurmountable.
0: hmm As I was thinking about this, I know we've all probably had an experience like Jonah, you know, we've had an unmet expectation or the one that really frustrates me is when I've said something and then I have to walk it back because like my boss or somebody else, you know, they'll be like, oh no, that's not what I meant. Or then I'm like, oh, not, you know, whatever. The one thing that I sort of kept thinking about when I was trying to think about putting myself in this role, having been like a case manager, working with homeless and at-risk youth, and then also working with folks experiencing intimate partner violence where, you know, maybe they leave their partner and then they go back and then they leave. Or like you might have done all this work for the client that you were working with. And then you have like set up a housing for them and blah, blah. And then they just fail to show up. And the frustration that you feel, I, I really could relate with Jonah in that. And what was helpful, you know, when you've had experience like that, what was helpful in helping you deal with that? What metaphorical shady plant did you find that helped you?
1: You know, this makes me think a little bit about what we were just saying, too. You know, whenever we heal ourselves, we never heal alone mm. and also be healing the systems we're in, the planet we're on, et cetera. So in cases like that, any sort of that kind of extreme disappointment and frustration that you come up against when you're trying to make a systematic change, even if it's a small Person to person, one, I think it's so important to have friends and family that you're turning to. Mm. That's also including your therapist, your priest, your spiritual director, those systems that you have to help find healing so that then you can continue this sometimes very thankful roller coaster we're on. You know, that we are trying to plant seeds for trees that we're never going to sit under by and large. Mm-hmm. And that takes courage, that takes a system in place for you to face that frustration so that you can keep doing that work long after it's fun, <laughs> long after you might think that it's you're making a difference, because some days it really is like that. So friends, family, systems of support have been my shady trees. And
3: maybe some good forest bathing. Mm. Under the vine, like every day, I've got to be out in nature, even when it's like right now, stinking hot outside right, <laughs> with like 80% humidity mm-hmm. and 98 degrees. I need to be outside just to be able to absorb just the goodness of nature around me. And for me, that is incredible. Yes, people and relationships, but my relationship with nature is also so crucial for my healing. So I need some time under the vine. And maybe when I'm getting like grumpy, I need to go out under the vine and soak in it a little bit and say, okay, God, I need you to restore me through all of this beauty that you've made. So some good forest bathing.
2: Hmm. At the risk of sounding like an overly pious Episcopalian, I will add too (laughs) that... In many ways, at at many moments in my life, for real, even before I was ordained, the liturgy was a shady tree of sorts for me. Mm. I can think of many instances throughout my journey, including early on when I first discovered the Episcopal Church, where I was really lost. I didn't know even what I believed about God and the world and my place within it. Something about the rhythm and the pattern of the liturgy, it felt almost biological. There was a rhythmic quality to it and a consistency to it that held me in some really broken places and allowed me the space to question and to discover and to heal. I think it's good for us as people who celebrate and cherish our liturgical tradition to remember that that too, alongside all the very good examples that you both gave, that that too is is something that can really nurture and nourish people in dry and difficult places. And I think to remind people as well, that the liturgy itself, that rhythm and pattern of it is kind of, you know, through the incarnation of Christ, it's knit into creation itself. It really speaks to the rhythm of the world as it's meant to be lived. It's not just some sort of proper fancy thing that we do on a Sunday. It's really giving voice and breath and body and movement to the pattern of love as it moves through the earth. And so when we take our part in that sort of liturgical movement, for me, that does feel like basking in warmth or resting under the shade, depending on what I need.
0: I think the familiarity of liturgy can be comforting. Like if it's something that you've done a lot, so obviously if it's your Mm -hmm. first time at church, you wouldn't have that experience. But like that feeling of comfort that comes from knowing what's going to be said, almost like sometimes you can go on autopilot. I know I've done that as a priest, you know, where you're just so, so involved and like, I'll just close my eyes, I know what's happening and then all at once I'll be like, oh, where were we? And I have to kind of come back to, you know, come back down. And I just love what she said, Christina, about being in nature. I, my recharging place is the Black Hills. Every time I'm there, I can smell that pine tree and it smells beautiful and it kind of grounds me. What tips do you have for preaching this lectionary? Mm,
1: this kind of goes back to what we were just saying. I encourage you to write your sermon outside. Take your sermon prep and go out and just be on the land for a little bit. Feel your first family surrounding you and see the difference that it might even make within your soul as you're preparing this to have that goodness surrounding you. I have found that when the sermons I write in that situation, always better. I'd lift that up as a practice.
2: Mm -hmm. I think we found some interesting creation avenues to, to enter into both of the texts we've talked about today a preacher could do well focusing on either I think there are some overlaps between the two that you could explore especially that question of who deserves what I've been intrigued by that in this in this talk as we've moved through it I think there's some really interesting stuff to unpack there Uh, If it's useful to anyone, that idea of sort of seeking the non-human characters in the story. So whether that's the vineyard in the gospel, whether it's the shady plant or the animals that God names among uh, the scope of God's concern in Nineveh, what might be revealed to you as you pray and meditate on these texts from a non-human perspective? And how might that signify some new or broader sense of good news for all of creation?
1: One of my best friends, Lindsay Lunham, when we were in seminary, wrote a whole sermon on the worm that comes and eats the leaves on Jonas Bush. So it was a great sermon. Oh, nice. Sometimes God sends a worm. <laughs> I've really
3: loved this conversation. And I think to be in conversation with others around these topics is really, really helpful for me. I mean, just to open my eyes to... Not just see what I always see Mm -hmm. in these scriptures, but to see something new and to see it through someone else's eyes, particularly someone who you might not normally connect with. This is a case in point to be able to listen to the podcasts and to hear the various voices from different places um, and different communities. I get together with a group of clergy once a month and we talk about what we're preaching on. And some of us preach the lectionary and some don't, but it helps to hone the What I'm preaching on when I can have a conversation with others about what are new things I'm seeing and what are new things they might be seeing, to be able to take the bounty of the community and the wisdom of the community that I'm connected with has been really great. And I've been really thankful for all of you for the great questions and new ways of seeing these scriptures that I wouldn't have seen before.
0: I really like, Phil, what you had said about economy versus ecology, like thinking of that. And as you were talking, it made me think of the Braiding Sweetgrass book, where she talks about this idea of reciprocity and things. And that might be where I would lean. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on this podcast. I know you've all been here before, but I always really appreciate your wisdom, which is why I always ask you to come back. So thank you so much.
1: Thanks for inviting us. This is great. Yeah, the feeling is mutual. I'm always so happy to be part of these conversations, and I always walk away with a better sermon prep than I normally ever get. So thank you.
2: Such a pleasure to be in dialogue with all of you and blessings for a season of creation for all of us.
0: If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash Beloved hyphen community. If you want to learn more about Creation Care, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash creation care. Thanks to our guests, Christina, Hillary, and Phil. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you were drawn closer to the vine today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine.
1: if you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.